So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 31. Last Lord's Day, Joshua led us to consider Psalm 13, which he noted shows connections with the teaching of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Joshua pointed out in that psalm the, the, the movement of David's prayer from complaint, you remember that recurring word, how long, expression how long, that expressed his sense of isolation and despair. He, Joshua pointed out that 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 moved then to a confession of faith on David's part, uh, faith that God would save him. And we also saw in that psalm a, a movement from the emotional, heartfelt pleas of David uh, to God in the beginning of the psalm to the uh, praise of David at the end of that psalm for God's steadfast love and salvation. That kind of movement that Joshua noted there from complaint to confession and from pleas to praise is common in the Psalms. Uh, I think he mentioned that and, and I would add my recommendation to his that you go to the Psalms as a means to, to enrich your own prayer life. I'm sure like me, there must be times when you, you have the sense that your prayers are sort of becoming rote, routine. Uh, you sense a prayerlessness uh, in, in your life, that you're going days without praying. Well, the, the Psalms can be a real help to that. Uh, just read the Psalms and, and then pray the Psalms as your prayers. And, and I think you'll, you'll be encouraged in that in your own prayer life. And I think your own prayers will be uh, shaped in a way that is more meaningful and passionate as you do that. Joshua also pointed out that that Psalm 13, the prayer of David in Psalm 13, uh, and the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 share a common theme of suffering and affliction. Uh, David is praying out of a time when, when he is feeling beleaguered, abandoned uh, in, in the midst of his friends, in the midst of his enemies. And, and and surely he felt at times like a sheep among the wolves, as Jesus used that expression in Matthew 10, and, and knew what it was to be betrayed by family members, as we looked at in Matthew 10 a couple of Sundays ago, to flee from unjust attacks, and even to be under the threat of death that Jesus says his disciples will experience. Uh, certainly, there were occasions uh, when David would ask why, why is that happening? As Joshua pointed out, there seems to be no indication in Psalm 13 that there's a specific sin that David is being convicted of. Uh, and there are going to be times when, when God's people, uh, well, all the way uh, through history and continuing to, into the future, there are going to be those times when, when God's people suffer at the hands of their enemies not directly as a response to any sin on their part. And in the teaching of Jesus in our text for today, we're going we're gonna to hear him answer, uh, in part at least, that question, why is this happening? And we're also going to hear Jesus tell us how to think in these circumstances. How are we to 
how are we to respond to times of persecution and affliction? Uh, what beliefs should undergird our attitudes and responses? So, so listen for that then as we pick up in our Lord's teaching in chapter 10 of Matthew with uh, verse 24, and I'll be reading through verse 31. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sowed for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Oh, there's a beautiful composition to this teaching, isn't there? And we notice the shift in his teaching. If we took time to go back and look at the previous sections of Jesus' teaching there in chapter 10, we'd notice there's sort of a shift that happens right to picking up with our text at verse 24 there. And you, you, you may have noticed, even in my reading it, that the sort of poetic quality to it. And in fact, if you reflect a minute, I, I think you'll, you'll easily see that Jesus is speaking in Proverbs here, isn't he? Because Jesus frequently uses Proverbs in his teaching. Uh, he obviously knew the book of Proverbs very well, and there are other books that have Proverbs in them as well, uh, in the Old Testament, and Jesus makes extensive use of Proverbs in his teaching. Well, you want to be careful to interpret Proverbs like Proverbs. Okay. Uh, it's been said sometimes that the three most important things in interpreting the scripture are genre, genre, genre. What type of literature are we looking at? So we want to interpret Proverbs like Proverbs, not like narrative, not like law, not like prophecy. Okay, but we want to read these as Proverbs. So we want to remember that the point of a proverb, we could say in a sense, is to, is to show us how things are in real life. Now, sometimes the proverb may point to something negative about real life. Okay? Uh, you see that in a number of the proverbs in the Old Testament. You know, they'll talk about uh, how a wealthy person, you know, riches can get you the ear of a leader. Well, that's the way things are. But that's not a good thing. Okay? So sometimes the proverb describes something that is morally good, sometimes it describes something that is morally evil. But the point is, it's describing the way things are. Not necessarily the way they should be, not even the way they 
are in absolutely every case. Okay, so this is not, a proverb is not a law that's saying this always is the case. So, for instance, even with this proverb that Jesus gives us here, this combination of proverbs, he first states negatively, then positively. The negative in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Then positively, same idea expressed in positive terms, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Okay, we could say, well, whoever taught Einstein math <laughs> wasn't above him in his math capability. Certainly, we could just go right to Jesus' life, right? I mean, he was taught in the synagogue there in Nazareth. Are, are we going to say that that he is not, did not rise above whoever taught him in the synagogue? Okay. So we're not interpreting this as a law. Rather, we're looking at this general statement that Jesus is making. This is the way things are. A student in the class relationship or in the teaching relationship is not considered above his teacher. The students don't tell the teacher how to teach. I know today they do. Okay. There are a lot of universities and colleges where back in my day in the 60s the students started telling the teachers how to teach. But that's not normally the way things are in this life. Nor is a servant above his master. Okay. Normally, there is a, a hierarchy, there is an authority relationship being described here, right? Now, the master may be a harsh one or a good one. The teacher may be effective or ineffective. What Jesus is focusing on is the authority relationship and the fact that students shouldn't consider themselves above teachers, and servants or slaves shouldn't consider themselves above masters. Now, why is he doing that? What's the point? He illustrates the truth that he's pointing to with these Proverbs in the next verse. Okay, here's what makes it relevant. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, see the use of the term master, how much war would they malign those of his household? What's he talking about? He's talking about himself, isn't he? He's saying, you are my students. You, in a certain sense, are my servants. I'm the master. I'm the teacher. And if I've been maligned, don't be surprised if you're maligned. That's what he's saying. Back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, we saw the Pharisees say to Jesus, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. That's who is being indicated by this name, Beelzebul. We could analyze the origin of that name. It has some Canaanite roots and, and possibly is derived from a name used of a Canaanite god. But the, the point is, there. They're saying he's casting out demons by the devil. That's what they're saying. In, in chapter 12, they'll say explicitly, 
It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. In Mark 3, scribes coming down from Jerusalem say, He's possessed by Beelzebul. He's demon-possessed. Same charge is repeated in Luke 11:15 and John 7:20 the crowd says you have a demon who is trying to kill you that's days of course before they try to kill him so what's the truth that Jesus is pointing out to his disciples what's the answer to that question why the followers of Jesus sometimes suffer persecution it's because of their identification with him because of their identification with it. If you're in part of my family, household here means family. If you're a part of my family and they're cursing and maligning the head of the family, don't be surprised if they do the same thing to you. Now, I'm not saying that every time a believer is maligned, it's because of the cause of Christ. Okay, there are a lot of times when people malign us because we deserve it. Okay. If I've sinned against a person and they rebuke me for it, they mock me for it, that's not Jesus' fault. Okay, that's mine. But Jesus is saying that it will be the case in this world, in this age, that those who bear my name, those who belong to me, will be persecuted. They will be maligned. Now, what's to be the response to that? Okay. He goes on then, in the next verse, with the first of three imperatives. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't you want to live a life free from fear. Jesus is going to tell you how to live a life free from fear here. Listen up. Here's the first thing. Okay, in light of the reality that you may be maligned, cursed, because of the cause of Christ, verse 26, therefore, He's drawing a connection. Translation may say, so there. Because this is happening, because you're being maligned in this way, therefore, don't be afraid. At first glance, that doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to make sense. Okay? When somebody's maligning me, that's a reason for me not to be afraid. Well, Jesus, I do think, intends a logical connection here. And I think it's revealed when we look at what he says next. So, therefore, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known, made known. When people malign you, you have good reason not to be afraid of that, because the truth will out, to use Shakespeare's say. The truth will out. Okay, the lies will be exposed. 
Okay, the lies of the Pharisees about Jesus were exposed by the truth of who he is. Jesus is saying, when people lie about you, when they malign you, your response should be, I'm not afraid of that because I know the truth will come out in the end. The great writer of the 20th century, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, said that that idea, that idea is behind all of his writing. All of his writing. He wrote it into the his Nobel lecture where he accepted the Nobel Prize for literature. He said, Proverbs about truth are well loved in Russian. This is the conclusion to his essay. They give steady and sometimes striking expression to the not inconsiderable, harsh national experience. And here's this proverb that he says that he, he bases everything on. One word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. One word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. He says earlier in the speech, lies and violence always go together. Violence has to justify itself by lies, and lies bring violence. But in the end, truth prevails. He can say that because he looks beyond this present life. Right, he's taking a theological stance here, and that's what Jesus wants us to do when we're maligned, when we're lied about. Don't be afraid. The truth will out. In fact, we could say, when I'm lied about because of the, for the sake of Jesus, that is an incredible privilege. Look again at verse 25. It is enough. It is enough. I think here's a perfect example of an understatement. Is it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master? And you are maligned for the sake of Christ. You are having the greatest compliment paid you. Right? Someone thinks you look like him. And so they're maligning you. Because they hate him. That's in fact where we got the name Christian. The name Christian was actually a derogatory term. Coined by enemies of the faith. Literally, they were saying, these people are running around like a little bunch of little Christs. And the Christians heard that and said, well, that's a compliment if I ever heard one. <laughs> and that's how you came to be called Christians. Are you identified as a Christian because you're so much like Christ? And there's a lot that goes by the name Christian today. It doesn't cost anything to bear the label in our culture. Not, not in terms of violence, anyway. 
If you're maligned for the sake of Christ, it's because you look like him. Don't be afraid. The truth will out. Well, there are times when the oppression goes beyond just words, though, right? Jesus says that to his followers over and over again. In John chapter 7, he says of his biological brothers who are mocking him at that time, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The conviction of sin provokes hostility on the part of those who are convicted, and so they lash out at the one that points out their sin. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so he says, you're going to suffer persecution. The world is going to hate you, just like it hates me. He says that to the disciples on his last night with him in, in uh, John chapter 15. He talks about the fact that that because the world hates me, they're going to hate you. If they loved me, they'd love you, he says. And so he, he warns his disciples there in John 15, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have suffering. He doesn't say to them, you may have it. He says, you will have it. Now, they're not to be dismayed about that. He goes on and says, in this world you have tribulation, but do not be dismayed, for I have overcome the world. But that, that doesn't do away with the tribulation, with the suffering. And so over and over again in the New Testament, we're told that to be a Christian is to live a life of persecution. Paul says to, second, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, which he writes from a prison cell, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul did not preach a health and wealth gospel. He wasn't like one of these TV preachers that says, if you have faith, everything's going to go well for you. You're going to get a promotion at work. You're going to find the right person to marry, etc., etc. No, here's what Paul and the other apostles said when they were establishing churches. In Acts 14, Paul and his, and his apostolic band are going back through Asia Minor and revisiting one more time the churches they established and they leave them with this message through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God when John writes the book of Revelation to the churches of Asia Minor he identifies himself as I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus you see the connection he makes there? I am your brother and partner in tribulation, the kingdom, patient endurance. Those are inseparable. You can't have the kingdom without patient endurance. You want to have patient endurance without tribulation. 
And so the writer of Hebrews urges us to keep that in mind as we run the race that God sets before us. To look to Jesus, the author, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To endure persecution, to endure tribulation, to endure hardship, you're going to have to have a long-range view. You're going to have to look beyond this present life. Look beyond this present life. Young people, now, look beyond this present life. Please, so you don't have the regrets of some of us who are old, look at the long-range view. Don't sell your souls for earthly things. Look at the contrast between the earthly view and the eternal view that Jesus sets out in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body. Well, that's about as bad as it gets. I'm not supposed to fear anything that anybody does to me. I think when Jesus says, kill the body, he's, he's subsuming everything else that can be done against us in the earthly realm. Don't be afraid of those who could kill the body. Why? Because they cannot kill the soul. Their power is limited. It's confined to this earthly life, which is so quickly passing away. Their power over you is this long. That's what he's saying. Don't fear those who have power to harm you for such a short little time as this life is. Now, there is somebody to fear, he goes on to say. And this fear would drive out the other fear. I think that's why he mentions it here. Okay, why doesn't he just say, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear? Why does he throw this fear in here? Well, because if you fear this fear, it will free you from these other fears. So look at it again, verse 28. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You want to get over your fear of other people? Fear God more. The one who fears God, it has been said, this isn't original with me by any means, the, the one who fears God fears no man. If you have a godly fear, if you have a fear of God, that will enable you to triumph over every other fear possible. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These earthly enemies have such limited power. It's so fleeting. Think back on all the oppressors of the church, of the people of God of past ages. Where are they now? Where are they now? Their power was just for a very brief time. 
God says this through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 51. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? The son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. Why do you fear these puny earthly powers, he's saying. I created everything. I created the earth. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he's talking to Christians who are suffering, and he says sometimes suffering for righteousness sake, not because they've done anything wrong, but because they are believers. They're, being, they're suffering for righteousness sake. He says, have no fear of them, that is your oppressors. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor the Christ the Lord as holy. Literally, that could be translated, sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. Ha have a godly fear, and that would drive out your fear of these other people. David says in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 56, later on, In God whose word I praise, and the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, what can man do to me? We can go on and on. Over and over again, we're told, Fear the Lord, and you will fear no earthly power. good example of this that Susan and I were reading in, our, in the daily devotions not long ago from Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, in fact. You read about the midwives who are commanded by Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world. They're commanded by Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew baby boys. And they disobey him. They refuse to honor his command. Why? The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Their fear of God drove out their fear of Pharaoh. Let all the earth fear the Lord, Psalm 33 says. Let the, all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be commanded and it stood firm. Just looking at creation around us should be drawing us to fear the Lord, Psalm is saying. Now that... That fear is not incompatible with joy. Listen to Psalm 40. He, that is God, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. The fact that God has rescued me, the psalmist is saying, will move other people to fear the Lord because they will see what he has done for me. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all people, shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy. Why? For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. It should be a source of joy to know that God is the one to be feared above the kings of the earth. 
all these puny earthly powers that we see in the news every day that are inflicting harm and suffering on human beings. They're like nothing in comparison to the Lord, the great King over all the earth. And so Psalm 86 prays, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I, I love that expression, unite my heart to fear your name. Give me wholeness of heart to fear you. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, Psalm 96 says. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Fear and praise go hand in hand. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He greatly delights in his commands. Fear of the Lord is accompanied by delighting in his commands. And so a person is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Over and over again, you see this truth. Fear of the Lord is going to drive out other fears. But Jesus doesn't end there, right? He doesn't leave his followers in a state of fear. Now, in one sense, yes, yes, we are left in a state of fear because God is always to be feared. Okay? But fear doesn't fully define the relationship between God and his people. And we already saw that, of course, in some of the passages I just read, where it said God is to be feared and also praised, feared and loved, feared and forgiving. So Jesus sets up this last fear knot with, again, some... Proverbial type sayings in verses 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Now, usually when we, we hear that, by the way, we think fall to the ground, we think fall down dead, but, but that word doesn't really say that. It could be translated, not one of them alights on the ground. Not one of them lands, touches foot without your father being cognizant of it, apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. What's being emphasized here about God? You see it? His sovereign omniscience. His sovereign knowledge of all things. That's what's being affirmed. This God whom we fear is sovereign over the tiniest events the most insignificant aspects of our lives. And so because of that, now read verse 31, fear not therefore, see he's making a logical connection again, because God is sovereign, because he is all-knowing and sovereign even over the most insignificant details of life, therefore you need not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now the basis for this command not to fear, there in verse 31, is really 
found in verse 29 in the words, your father. Your father. How is it that Jesus can speak to his followers, followers of the sovereign and all-knowing God who is holy in his righteousness, who is to be feared above all? How can he speak of him as your father? I mean, he has just warned us to fear the one who can condemn sinners to hell. That would seem to include everyone, right? Is there any of us that can say we're perfectly holy and unworthy of hell? A God who is sovereign, a God who is holy, cannot but judge sin. Now, Jesus will say of seemingly good religious people that their father is the devil. And some of his Jewish enemies claim to be children of Abraham. He will say, no, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of the devil. What's he saying by that? Well, he's saying the fruit of your lives shows your parentage. If the proof that we are not the children of God, but rather the children of the devil, is that we sin, then how can Jesus speak two sinners saying your father in heaven how can he direct us to pray as we prayed earlier in this in this service our father who is in heaven now jesus cannot be speaking an untruth here so how is it that you come to be those who can address god as your father Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father. So you are now no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Why are you so valuable to God? Why does he look on you as a father looks upon a treasured child. All right, this text in Galatians, Galatians tells us you're made a child of God by the Father's sending. The Father saw you in your sin, saw you as the child of sin you were, the child of the devil, and the Father sent a rescue. The Father sent the Son. And look at the Son's part in Galatians 4, 5. To redeem those who are under the law. The Son has redeemed you. He has 
redeemed you from sin by his own life. He's laid down his perfect life for you so that you could be adopted as sons. And, and look at the element, the, the part of the spirit. Because you're our sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit has indwelt you as a newborn child of God and speaks to God as Father on your behalf. The, entire, the whole of the Trinity is involved in making you the child of God. And that's the basis upon which Jesus says, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Spurgeon calls this text, the title he gives to this text is The King Cheering His Champions. <laughs> the King Cheering His Champions. The King has provided for your adoption as the children of God. And he has overcome all sin that would have enslaved you and condemned you to hell. If you really believe this, doesn't that drive out every other fear? Nothing can touch you eternally. This is one of the reasons why the witness of the church has been so powerful down through the ages. What do you do with people who fear God so much they fear nobody else. You beat them, and like Peter and John, they say, praise God that we could suffer on behalf of Christ. You throw them in jail like the Apostle Paul, and God uses his time in jail to create most of the New Testament books. <laughs> you threaten them with death, and they say, praise God, I will see my Savior. we really grab this truth, won't that make us fearless champions in the cause of Christ? And won't this empower you to overcome those sins which you struggle with so much? fear of God and the knowledge that he has redeemed you can empower you to overcome those sins that are enslaving you. You can say to them, you don't have a hold on me. And avail yourself of the strength of the Spirit to overcome those sins which would enslave you. We have a wonderful calling as Christians, don't we? Jesus is calling us to a wonderful way of life. Let's ask him for grace to live it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may we be a people who fear you in the best sense of that word and a people at the same time who know ourselves to be loved as the very children of God a guarantee 
of that truth, of that fact that we are your children, is, is the gospel, is the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Lord, settle that truth firmly in our hearts. Make us your children in a deeper and richer sense so that we can more fully glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.